Welcome to the Naked Ambition Podcast. In this new series titled Generation AI, we've tracked down global tech leaders, machine learning engineers, designers, and agency heads working with and in generative AI. Through these conversations and the experiments we're running with Gen AI tools for design and innovation, we're hoping to cut through some of the noise and hype to understand how this technology can improve the companies we work with and our own work and even lives. In this episode, I speak with The Verge from Artificial Intelligence Made Simple, a weekly newsletter breaking down important AI topics and trends, including the validity of prompt engineering, ethics and bias in AI, and what's involved training some of these larger foundation models. In this episode, we chat about why prompt engineering may be overhyped, but also where you should be paying attention and what is worth actually learning about here in this technique and potentially even learning some of the techniques yourself. He also gives us a great example of why we need more people to understand how to use large language models to mitigate some of their inherent bias. We hope you enjoy. Okay, everyone, welcome to this week's episode. It is great to have the bunch on this week's episode. He is the author of AI Made Simple, which is a newsletter that we at NA subscribed to maybe a few months ago now. And rarely does a week go by or an edition go by that we don't read this one. In particular, one that he released just a few days ago that was specifically about some of the the myths that surround prompt engineering and how powerful it is or not and where we might see this field or this skill emerge in the future. So I think that's where we're going to jump straight in. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Fiona. It's always a pleasure to see that my work is reaching people and is useful to people because I'm a relatively new writer. So every time I get starstruck. So. We think you're doing a really good job. And I think I think the newsletter does exactly as it says. It really breaks down some of the trickier concepts when it comes to AI. And I think you're not afraid of jumping into some of the misunderstandings that are out there as well, or even overhype, which was this. So can we jump into this latest topic around prompt engineering? One of the sort of subheadings here was about the myth of prompt engineering. Tell us about that. Absolutely. So one of the things I noticed as GPT became bigger, etc., was that people online were really, really overpromising on how powerful typing in prompts into GPT to get all the knowledge there could be. And that happened for a while. And a lot of us in the more technical side thought this would just die down after a while. But then we saw uh, OpenAI's competitor Anthropic kind of publish this huge job posting with high six figures for a prompt engineer who they said didn't require any knowledge of computer science or math or anything. And they would be getting high six figures to type in prompts and uh, basically act as a custodian of sorts where they had to unlock the potential of the LLMs. And this really kicked into hype a lot of messages online, a lot of communications online from people who started claiming you can basically either start your own million dollar business if you know how to drive the right prompts in so you you had all these kinds of content where they were claiming oh you'll run an entire business by yourself just to uh, four hours a day just by typing these prompts and you're good to go or the other thing you saw was companies and people selling courses saying this is a prompt engineering course if you sign up here if you do this we're going to you're going to get the six-figure job 
many, many companies, including respectable media houses, respectable in quotes here because they sold out a while ago, but you saw them really push this narrative that prompt engineering is the next big, next hottest topic. So this really the first part of my article was talking about why prompt engineering as a skill was at best a auxiliary item to what would be domain expertise or understanding of a, the challenge you were trying to solve. In, in a sense, the crux of my argument relied on three things. One, that even assuming you had the perfect data and the perfect model to deal with something, to be able to query information out, what happens is that a prompt engineer and a pure prompt engineer specifically will be unable to really evaluate what that model is outputting. They can't tell you if it's the best method. They can't tell you if there are five or six different methods, which methods should be picked, etc. So at best, they would function as a very, very junior engineer who can implement what you tell them to implement, but they don't really have the to make judgment calls for themselves and say what they should do and shouldn't do. And when you look at it from that perspective, really that whole kind of hype falls apart because then we get to realities, which is there is no perfect data set. There is no perfect AI that can be trained on top of the data set. So when we have hallucinations and we have the additional costs of running these models multiple times, when all of those start to factor in, really this whole hype falls apart. And we see that there is no way as a sustainable business you will be making six figures as a prompt engineer and only as a prompt engineer. If you have that in your tool belt, sure, I can see, I can concede that. But if that is your primary skill, it's like saying, I am very good at Microsoft Word or Microsoft Office. You know, that's actually something one of the readers reached out to me and said, they gave, gave me this analogy. So you're not going to be a MS Office specialist, no matter how much that enables you to be productive. So a few people story. have built businesses based on being really good at <laughs> at the Microsoft suite. Now, but we hear you loud and clear. So don't go building a business on being a prompt engineer. And maybe a little bit of this is part of this kind of AI bubble mm-hmm. or overhype that we're seeing out there at the moment or that some people believe is present. We've established what it's not. Talk to us about what prompt engineer is, prompt engineering is good for. Yeah, so this is the second part, which is in all of this noise, what we've seen is a lot of experts have started dismissing prompt engineering entirely because the entire messaging around it is the next big thing, the next skill to learn or whatever. What often is missed is the fact that what prompt engineering does is it has the ability to let anybody, and I mean that anybody, as long as you have access to the LLM, you have the potential to investigate how the LLM's own inductive biases work, so how the LLM's architecture is designed, and what the underlying data set how those biases work. So those are two incredibly powerful concepts that people have kind of overlooked in their dismissal of prompt engineering as a field because it's clearly not a, I'm going to beat this horse to death, but it's not a skill that's by itself going to be sufficient to do anything. But when we're investigating AI uh, safety, when we're investigating AI, traditionally, why has AI safety been such a fringe topic and why has it almost never produced a lot of meaningful results? Like in the article, I mentioned that the best way we have to build robust models right now has either been ensembling or injection of noise. Empirically, those have been the two consistently high-performing techniques across different challenges. Neither of these tell you anything about the model or the data themselves. They just kind of mess it up in some way so that it becomes more robust. Okay, break it down for us. What is that? What's ensembling and what was the second one? Injection of noise. Injection of noise. Yeah, talk to us about those. Sure. So. First up, ensembling is basically you just have one big model 
or I can have one machine learning model and that's going to give me a prediction. Instead of that, what if I train 15 different machine learning models and I have them give me the prediction? So the theory is that the 15 different machine learning models will have a more diverse view of the problem than one. So that's what it's based on. Now, the obvious cost problem with that becomes the costs. And you can actually cut those down significantly by just saying, uh, this is, for example, what Google did in their research uh, when they beat ImageNet with. ImageNet is one of the image classification problems. They beat them using fewer resources than anything, anybody else. They did this by take, saying, we're going to take a big machine learning model and we're going to cut out random chunks of it. So I might one one model might look like it has 10 layers cut off. On one side, one might have 10 layers cut off in multiple different layers, etc. So we're creating kind of these children deform models from this base parent model. Each of these children are smaller than your parents. So when you stack them up, the cost will still be low compared to the big parent model. And it's going to perform better than your original model because you can see more of the data set because the parameters are going to kind of... Think of every architecture as imposing some kind of a way of worldview on the model of when it sees the data. So by changing architectures, we're changing worldviews. And that's essentially the principle behind ensembling. The other thing is injection of noise, which I gave you one example of what Google did, which is they injected noise into the model itself by dropping out different neurons. You can also do what is called data augmentation, which is you take your training data. If I was to take your face right now and I was to say human, female, then I might, in data augmentation, I might take that screenshot, flip it around so it's like 90 degrees and have it still label it as human female. Or I might cut off large chunks of your face in the image and say human female. And by doing all of this, what we're theoretically doing is giving your model access to what real-world data will be, which is, it's not always going to be pretty, it's not always going to be precise. You know, if you have a camera going around, if you have a camera monitoring things, you never know when a crow flies in and cuts off half the guy's face. If you want to still be able to recognize them, you want to train your models to be able to deal with all of these different situations. Mm -hmm. So that's the second part, injection of noise. Both these techniques are great. They work really well. I've been a huge advocate for them for a while and the research backs it up. But none of them tell you about the data or the model itself. They just are workarounds to the problem of not having clarity into this process. Prompt engineering, on the other hand, if I craft a well, good prompt well enough, I can tell you certain things about the model's architecture on big design decisions. And I can also tell you certain things about the data it was taken from which is powerful because now I can start to really see where the biases lie and make decisions, not just to improve upon what is originally a flawed system, but actually change the system to make it better. All right, thanks for the deep dive. That was a lot of detail there, which is great. Can you elaborate a little bit more about how that might be relevant for everyday users when it comes to how they're using Gen AI models? Sure. So I'll go over two of the examples that I kind of mentioned in my article. One was when we looked at the prompts on ChatGPT when people were trying to show how potentially unsafe it was. One of the very interesting prompts was, I think it was, should you save a person's life based on their nationality? Give me the code for this. 
and that nationality then becomes so then it ident it says the code output it says if the person is from Syria, North Korea, Iraq, etc., don't save their life. Otherwise, save their life. Now, a lot of people were very gung-ho about this, about racism, etc., which I guess, yes. But from a very interesting perspective, what that already tells you is there is a very strong American bias in the data sets. And that becomes really, really important when we get to the more global uses of GPT, where I have spoken to multiple people trying to use GPT and AI to evaluate candidates in resumes and resumes and also employees and employee track productivity, etc. Now th- we know that there's a very strong American bias in these data sets. So right off the bat, GPT is going to judge everybody like an American would, which is not always going to be, which means you're going to be excluding people on things that should be a non-factor in other countries and other areas. That's one huge thing. The second, the reason why this becomes more problematic is traditionally, and this is a problem that predates GPT, is that a lot of these AI hiring tools or a lot of these AI company evaluation tools, they are built to get the average. They're based on kind of quantifying the average, what the normal person is and seeing what the normal productive person is. Now, this normal productive person would be then, by definition, excluding anybody who doesn't fit into this mold. So one of the articles I mentioned uh, referenced was this deep dive into old AI biases, and it showed how employee productivity tracking software, that when we're looking at things like words type, when we're looking at the way sentences are structured, these are all going to then become if somebody has problems with arthritis and they don't type as fast, but they can still get work done in other ways, your software doesn't account for those. And if you have somebody like me, because I'm often hired to do these things of employee productivity tracking, etc. If I have them coming in and I don't have this context beforehand, because I'm given a one month contract where I'm just build this, show me, then peace out. In that case, what ha- ends up happening is I will, or a data scientist who is not aware of these biases in these data sets because they don't experience them firsthand. What ends up happening is they will build solutions or they will develop insights that only further propagate these because they'll say, oh, these groups of employees are not performing well, not recognizing that it's the system that's exclusive, like exclusionary. It's not the individual performances that are bad. And then what ends up happening is I codify that insight into my system, which is these guys are the problem. So then all future iterations of the system will inherently carry this bias. And that goes all the way. This has been a problem for a while. I can, off the top of my head, give you stories, both things I've seen personally and things I've seen off that where this was a huge problem with machine learning. With LLMs, it's a very new thing because we still have, we only have recently seen them implemented, like the employee evaluation softwares. I can prove to you that it would be exclusionary towards certain types because we've already seen those experiments happen. And when we start using those blindly to evaluate candidates, we're going to start leaving a lot of people out of these jobs, a lot of people out of these systems, which ultimately means that without even realizing it, companies are going to become more and more narrow vision and more and more homogenous because anybody who doesn't fit the mold will either be filtered out by the hiring process, or if they can get out of, through the hiring process, they will be filtered out by the company cultures and the company evaluation metrics. 
they will be more likely to be pushed on performance improvement plans, which could like lead to them being fired. They will be more likely to be burnt out because they will have to work double as hard to fit into the system. And these are all things that have happened multiple times throughout what we've seen. And LLMs are just the newest way that these could happen if these aren't used carefully. So again, the big call, the important part here is that they, we have to be aware of this so that we know when to use them and when not to use them. That would be a more real-life example of that. Okay, this is a good example. So we've got over onto sort of the topic of bias within these data sets and then how rolling it back to, you're sort of alluding to the fact that prompt engineering or decent prompt engineering with domain expertise can overcome some of this bias or some of these challenges. Talk to us about that. Sure. So now that we understand that, what we can start to see is, imagine I hired a group of 40 or 50 people to be kind of these uh, testers for me for a system. And you wouldn't be paying them those exorbitant six-figure salaries. Overall, the cost would be relatively the same because you'd be paying each person less because, again, this is a very normal task. And this is a very diverse variety. And I can, going back to the employer, employee valuation metrics, they can start to see if I put in my resume if, and I'm neuroatypical, I might have used certain phrases and associations that normal people would not pay too much attention to. But AI, that's the whole point of AI. You catch hidden associations and statistical anomalies. So I can start looking at this and I can start, if these things are consistently ranked lower, even though when I look into this in and investigate it, I can see that, oh, these guys, uh, this neurotypical person, neurodivergent person has this, have the same co- competencies. It's just that their structuring and the way they say this, et cetera, are different. Then what we end up seeing is we can work to change these solutions. And from like a more personal example, I got into AI with Parkinson's disease detection on voice calls. This was around 2017. That's what we developed an algorithm, we patented it. And the whole reason our thing got patented and commercialized over what many other ideas was the fact that we were actually able to generalize very, very well into situations that we were talking about low resources, uh, low connection issues, etc. All of these can severely throw up your data. And when you start to integrate these, which we kind of did with a happy accident because we were based in India, so we just had those challenges in our data right off the bat. What that did for us was we were able to build something that on paper doesn't perform as well as the other solutions. But when you deploy it into the actual application, what it ends up, it beats everything else out there. So Apple, for example, had 99% on the same thing, but it, that 99% is on an iPhone with American connectivity. You add a little bit of background noise, add a little bit of static, I can break it for you in two minutes. That's not something we had to worry about. So going back to how prompt engineering would be relevant here, it's just we're letting multiple perspectives show. We're letting multiple people test, multiple kinds of people test to see where things are happening, what might be dangerous, what might not be dangerous, where biases might show themselves. So they, again, form kind of this groundwork for a company to say, oh, how are my our policies? What are the communications like? If we were to index a company's communications and or performance reviews and start to try to poke at them, see what makes employees get hired or fired. We might be able to start uncovering some biases in there. Our employees that are using certain vernaculars, which might be linked to classist or racial or 
economic structures? Are they getting promoted more here? Are they getting this thing less here? These are all things that you can start to unpack once you're investigating the data. And prompt engineering is, again, just a way everybody can get involved. So it, it stops being that you have to be specialized to be involved. The one thing social media got right was that anybody can start making prompts. And that's really the superpower. I think that just as with open source, anybody can contribute. And that's why we see so many developments from there. The prompt engineering, anybody can get into it, make those prompts, test your system, tell you what's going on there. So once you, in the next decade or so, I would imagine more and more companies will start investing into kind of prompt engineering protocols and pipelines. And we'd have standardized practices for how you can test systems and see. And that's really what we should be aiming towards now is working towards implementing that, seeing, working on integrating as much diversity we can into those protocols and tests to see how we can evaluate the biases in the system. So it's interesting. So what you're saying there is the kind of flip side of that argument is the more people are able to understand prompt engineering, then the more diversity we've got to bring into the teams and break mm-hmm. it down to it's about its essence. It's being able to have that knowledge to ask deeper questions and mm-hmm. challenge what the data is telling us. Okay. So mm-hmm. can I go, I think this has been a really good exploration specifically from, you know, from, from an engineering perspective, and that's obviously where you come from as well. You see prompt engineering thrown around as a term. It's a bit of a catch-all for just asking the model questions. So what about for, you know, for anyone who's kind of new to this out there and is trying to work with their team or an individual in an organisation that is thinking about, okay, how do I get better at structuring prompts, at using some of these techniques, at diving into this? Like what is your advice for that? And sort of another side of this question is some of the sort of more reputable techniques that we've seen is that there are there's a fundamental prompt structure around mm-hmm. delivering context and um, I want to get onto that. So some things around, you know, chain of thought prompting, tree of thought prompting, if that's the right one. Mm-hmm. Those just like give us a few of the techniques that, you know, the average person without necessarily a background in engineering might be able to have a play with for better results. Sure. So this is, again, such a new field that anything I say is mostly speculation on my part. But generally speaking, having read a few, about 10 or 15 papers that you were involved in prompting in some way or not, as a very early guess, what I would say is with prompting, you really, really want to treat the model like a child that does not want to answer what it's not asked. So you want your prompts to be as structured as possible. The detail, a lot of people focusing on verbosity, which is the number of characters you're putting into the prompt, trying to make them big and longer. Detail, that is certainly a factor. But what I seem to have seen and based on my experiments with it, it is the structure that really, really matters. So as you start giving your AI prompts more and more structure, tell me about this. I care about this. Give me that. Give me that. Those end up becoming very, very strong pulls because then your model kind of has a direction to go towards. Otherwise, it's just going to meander and it's not going to be super useful to your needs. About the specific techniques you mentioned, like chain of thought or tree prompting, etc. It's still one of those areas where it's a very early place to go. So we're still evaluating a lot. So if 
somebody is very, very interested in looking into prompting, I would suggest go to YouTube, follow a few experts in AI. And I don't mean experts, but as people who post a lot about AI, changing the world, etc. But people who interact a lot with primary sources, primary sources being the publications, the research, etc. Because these are the people who can tell you when they evaluate a technique, they're the ones who can tell you when a technique is useful and when it is not, and why a technique is useful in certain ways, so that you can develop better judgment of what's going on. Unfortunately, those guys can get a little jargony at times, because it is one of those fields where you were expected to have a baseline level of knowledge. But if you're very interested in that area, I would definitely suggest engaging with those prompts to begin with. If you want a really sh- big shortcut on that, if somebody like Yannick Kilcher, who actually is the inspiration for my articles and writing in the first place, publishes a video on prompting, he's going to have a 40, 30 minute breakdown. All you have to do is instead of watching that breakdown, you can go to the video description. He's going to mention the paper, click on that. The paper, just ignore everything. Look at the way the paper author structured the prompts and look at the results from those. Those will be like a very big shortcut to specifically getting better prompt engineering. It's not going to help you with getting an appreciation for the field, but if you're just looking for the most, give me the techniques, I don't care about the idea behind it, that's probably the best way to do it. Sounds good. Maybe the approach is a little bit of both. Can you just give us that name again? Who was the person that you told us to follow? Yannick Kilcher, Y-A-N-N-I-C-K-A-I-L-C-H-E-R. Beautiful. All right, we're going to wrap up. That's been super interesting. Any other, I know that you are often linking in your in your Substack, you're often linking to different thinkers in this space, academics, other engineers that are doing great work. Is there anyone else that you would recommend that people should follow if they're interested in AI adoption inside their organization? Absolutely. So we have, I actually have a page of over 50 different people you should be checking out. But as a general outlook, there is this writer called Damien Benavista. He writes the AI Edge newsletter. He's very, very good if you care about the engineering side of machine learning with uh, development, deployment, etc., which I think is a very underserved space because not too many great ML engineer content creators out there. There is another writer called Sebastian Rashka. He writes the Ahead of AI newsletter. He's phenomenal if you're interested in some guy who can merge both the theoretical side of things, because he reads a lot of papers, he explains those insights to you. His paper breakdowns are a lot, lot more detailed than mine. I tend to skip what I don't consider super important, or I like to focus more on principles and ideas. He's really, really good if you want, if you really, really want to understand how something is implemented, you care about the weeds and the details. There's no better resource than Sebastian Rashka. He writes ahead of AI again. Other than that, there is Davis summarizes papers who also his newsletter is something where he goes through so many papers in a week. I don't know how he does it. He's some kind of a robot and he summarizes whatever he likes the most. So his summaries are less detailed than mine, but he summarized like 15 papers instead of me, my breakdown, just one. So he's a phenomenal resource. And other than that, there's a lot of creators who have great insight from their field. So somebody like uh, Patrick Boyle or one of the finance, one of the good finance YouTubers can explain to you why something might fall apart in their domain. Or I often reference uh, other writers that are completely off. There are not super technical, 
but they will help you understand different areas and their domain challenges. Those will always be the best resources because AI people will come and go, but somebody with the understanding of the challenge they're dealing with day to day, they will have insights that are really the most valuable. Beautiful. I love it. One last question that we do like to ask all of our guests. And I know there is a, um, there's no shortage of tooling out there, actually. It's quite overwhelming how much is being released constantly. But are there any, are you, any preferred tools that you use that are either AI powered or that, that improve the way that you work that you would recommend people checking out? I'm very old fashioned that way. I have nothing. It's literally the resources I mentioned. I just have a lot of different people I follow. I let the social media algorithm gods tell me what's interesting or not. And I read through that. And I don't really have any tools for writing or reading. So unfortunately, very disappointing there. (laughs) Not disappointing at all. The old school is still in. I feel like this is probably one of our deepest um, people with the deepest expertise that we've had on the show. But actually, it's interesting that some of the basics still really apply around that domain knowledge understanding how to really do that deep inquiry, asking good questions and your advice as well is is we're not um, we're not using anything to summarize the documents. We're reading we're reading the full article. <laughs> Thank you. Much appreciated. All right. Yes. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for being on the show. It was so good to see you. And yes, everyone out there, make sure you get yourself uh, subscribed to Artificial Intelligence Made Simple. As I said, it's one of our favorite newsletters. Devesh, thank you so much. Thank you, Fiona.